Well, as we open God's word again, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you asking that you would please do a work in our hearts to help us to evaluate our lives according to your word. We want to live lives that are faithful to you. We want to be wholly devoted to Jesus. And Father, until we are perfected, until we are glorified, we live in this world in which the world, the flesh, and the devil are constantly tearing at our soul. We thank you that we have the Spirit of God, that we are secure in Christ, that we are in your hand and no one can snatch us out. But Father, I pray that you would use your word this morning to help us to walk more faithfully with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it is a fascinating aspect of humanity that we can be duped by appearances, right? We can look at a book and think it's great only to find that it's not so great on the inside. We can think that the car looks oh so shiny until we drive it off the lot and uh, find out that it's not so shiny and great and new on the inside. There are all sorts of ways that we can be duped by appearances. I read of a story that Dr. Chuck Swindoll told of a friend who went to a dinner party and it was a dinner party hosted by a uh, lady who had recently taken a class on, on gourmet cooking. And so she decided to uh, play a little joke on her friends who were coming to the party and to test her skills in this gourmet way of cooking to see if she could so fix up a dish that, uh, that they enjoyed but was actually dog food. So she took this dog food and put it on some delicate little crackers, put a wedge of imported cheese on there, some bacon chips, an olive, and a sliver of a pimento right on top. She put them on a silver tray, brought them out to her guests, and they were thoroughly enjoyed. And in fact, Chuck Swindoll's friend who's recounting this said he ate several, he couldn't get enough. <laughs> you can only imagine the reaction when he found out actually what he was eating. But it just goes to show that appearances, even the experience with our eyes and with our mouth can be deceiving. We think that we are eating something good and when in fact... This friend found out he was eating dog food. But I believe it's an illustration of the fact that all that shines, all that glitters is not gold, right? All that looks good on the outside is really not good at its core. And the reality is, is that this world is constantly seeking to attract and allure and pull in our hearts by the things that glitter, by the things that looked look great. The world, for God's people, those who live by faith, has always provided a certain amount of attraction and allure. By the world, this morning, I'm talking about those people, the, the group of sinful humanity that are opposed to God and are influenced by 
the enemy, Satan. And along with this mass of sinful humanity ever since Genesis 3 come people with cultures and, and societies and values and, and products that those societies produce. It's this whole conglomerate. The Bible tells us that this world is passing away along with its desires. Those in the world, the people that are characterized by the world, love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil, John 3 tells us. And so this world represents all that is opposed to God. And yet, for those who believe in Christ, the world provides a certain attraction. We like the things that the world produces. We like the affirmation and the praise that we receive from all those around us. We like the comfort, the ease, the financial security that we find in this life. And yet, it can be any number of these things that draw our hearts away from Christ. And this is what theologians and pastors and writers of the past call the danger of worldliness. The danger of worldliness. You don't hear much about worldliness these days, but it's a real temptation for Christians. For us to begin to look like the world, to value the world, and want to follow the world. The Apostle John was very clear in 1 John chapter 2. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, John understood that the people that he was writing to, the Christians that he wrote that letter to, would be tempted to love the world and all that it offers. He wouldn't have to write this warning if there wasn't that temptation. He knew a battle would rage in their hearts. Would they live for the here and now or would they live for eternity? Would they live for what is passing away or would they live for what abides forever? And this is the temptation with us today. And we need to constantly remind ourselves of what is true, of what is, what is truly gold, not just what glitters and looks like gold. We don't want to live by lies. We don't want to be duped into living for the here and now only. We want to live for eternity, live for what truly matters. And this is why Jesus' words in Luke chapter 6 are so important for us. And so I invite you to open your personal copy of God's holy and inspired and errant word and turn to Luke chapter 6, if you're not there already. Luke chapter 6. We began looking at Jesus' sermon that begins in verse 20 last week. This sermon accords very closely with the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And I believe it is the same sermon because the circumstances are so similar and the basic structure of the sermon is similar as well. There are differences for, to be sure, but there's enough similarities, I believe, to, to show this to be the same occasion. There's just different accountings of that same sermon. Now, Jesus began his sermon, verses 20 through 26, with a list of blessings and a list of woes. 
or condemnations. And it's in these two lists that we've been drawing out two sets of qualities. The qualities of a disciple of Jesus and the qualities of a disciple of the world. The point in looking at these two lists is for each one of us to examine our lives and to ask, whose disciple am I? Whose disciple am I? What path am I on? And thus, can I expect blessing in my future or woe? So let's read the passage before us. We'll start in verse 17 and read through verse 26. It says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowds sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Excuse me, false prophets. So let me, as we look at this passage, we're going to see the qualities of a disciple of Jesus and a disciple of the world. Let me briefly remind you of what we looked at last week and those qualities of a disciple of Jesus that we see here in verses 20 through 23. Jesus listed four of them, and each of those qualities come with a blessing. The first, Jesus pronounces a blessing on the spiritually poor, the spiritually poor. He says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. These are people, remember, you'll remember we said, who may be physically poor, may be destitute of finances, but they are primarily characterized by faith-filled dependence on the Lord. They recognize their lack of spiritual strength, their lack of spiritual resources and ability. They are, as Matthew calls them, poor in spirit. Jesus promises these poor and needy disciples that they are citizens of the kingdom. They belong to the kingdom. The kingdom belongs to them. And while they may have nothing in this life, they will have everything in the life to come when the kingdom is set up. Next, Jesus blesses, secondly, the spiritually hungry. First, the spiritually poor. Secondly, the spiritually hungry. He says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. These people, like the saints in the Old Testament, they longed for God with such intense passions that they hunger and they thirst for him. They want God and the manifestation of his righteousness in their lives with the same intensity as a man without water in the desert looks for a drink. And the promise for disciples who hunger for God is that they will receive what they desire one day. 
For the Christian, this life is characterized by longing and the next life is characterized by fulfillment. Now we are certainly blessed now with the, with the Holy Spirit and with our union with Jesus Christ. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, Ephesians 2 tells us. But there is an eternal weight of glory that is awaiting for us. And that is when all hunger and desires will be satisfied. So he says, blessed are the, are the hungry. Thirdly, he said, blessed are the spiritually sorrowful. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. He's not simply blessing all those who happen to be depressed or sad. He's those who are godly and who are sad. Those who are struck with the depth of sin in their own lives and in other people's lives. They weep over the causes and effects of sin. And they grieve at at death and disease, at, at the consequences of sinful humanity in a society. You see, to live in a fallen world means disciples of Jesus have heavy hearts in this life. As we look around us and we see a world that hates the Lord. But Jesus promises that there will come a day when our tears will be wiped away and we will joyfully laugh without a care in the world. All worry will be gone, all pain will pass away, and all sorrow will be history. That is what is promised to a disciple of Jesus. But finally, the fourth quality of a disciple of Jesus that he gives us here in verses 22 and 23 is that his disciples are blessed who are physically persecuted. Physically persecuted in verses 22 and 23. In the midst of the poverty, the hunger, the tears, Jesus promises blessing as his disciples are reviled and excluded and hated by the world. Now, we naturally want to avoid suffering. We naturally want to avoid pain. But Jesus says that we can expect it if we are a disciple of him. It's as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I believe he's simply repeating what Jesus says here. If you're going to follow me, Jesus says, you can expect hatred and revilement and ostracization. Now, Jesus surprisingly doesn't tell us to mourn about that. We're weeping about other things, but we're not supposed to be weeping and sorrowful because of the persecution we receive. He says instead to rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Because, number one, our reward is great in heaven. All the pain and suffering we experience here does not pales in comparison to all that we will experience one day when we are in Christ's presence. Present pain for eternal gain. A Christian may look destitute in this life. The world may laugh at a Christian because we have almost nothing. But we know in heaven how rich we will be. And we know that we're in good company. It was the prophets of old that were also excluded and criticized and suffered in the same way. And so Christians who suffer in this life stand with the great prophets of old. And so as we look at these qualities, we have to ask ourselves if these qualities characterize us. Do we live humbly before God and others? Do we confess our dependence upon the Lord for life and for righteousness? Do we long for him? Do we hunger for him? Do we go to his word and to prayer out of hunger for intimacy with him? Do we grieve over our sin at all? Do we care that we have, we have transgressed God's word? And are we prepared to suffer for Christ? Do we understand that as long as our society rejects Christ, it will slander and exclude us? 
You see, we'll be considered not just a menace to our society, but a threat to it. But that comes with the territory of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. So these are the qualities of a disciple of Christ. Well, Jesus then contrasts these with what it means to be a disciple of the world. And that's what we'll look at next. Next, we'll look in these four woes, four qualities of what it means to be a disciple of the world. Four qualities of a disciple of the world. He does this by highlighting four woes, right? Woe, 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 all the way through verse 24 through 26. Woe is a word that doesn't just express disappointment, but it's a divine declaration in which Jesus is stating the official declaration from God on those who walk in these ways. This is a declaration of their condition. In other words, Jesus is not just saying, alas, I'm sad that you're living this way, although there's an element of that. But he's more saying, behold, I declare you are condemned for living this way. And so we need to take note. First quality of a worldly disciple is that he's arrogantly rich. The first quality of a, of a worldly disciple is that he's arrogantly rich. Verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Now we can know by putting the studying all of the scriptures that Jesus here is not just condemning those with a, a, a lot of money. That just simply having wealth it is not a condemnation. In fact, the Bible has rich people in it, and uh, many are blessed by God. You think of Abraham. He was wealthy. Or Job. He was the wealthiest man. Solomon, certainly. Joseph of Arimathea, who ended up burying Jesus in his tomb. And there's others. And so we can recognize that God even gives wealth and grants uh, material blessings in that way. And so just being rich, just having a lot of money in one's bank account does not make someone fall under this condemnation. But the Bible gives lots of warnings about the danger of money and wealth. For example, 1 Timothy 6.10 says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. From that love of, of money, that greed can stem all sorts of sinful practices in our lives. And we know this when we look around us, right? Men and women of the world love to amass wealth. They find security in their wealth. They think nothing will ba bad will happen to them because of their money. And this causes them to think that they're self-made. They got to this position, they earned the wealth, they did the work, and now they can bask in the pleasures, comfort, and security of their wealth. And so in their richness, they fail to acknowledge the God who created them and the God who providentially allowed the circumstances to work out for them to even have that wealth. It reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar, right? The great king of Babylon, he walks across across uh, surveying his kingdom. And he says, look at this great kingdom that I have built. Of course, the Lord struck him down and caused him to go out into the field and eat grass like a beast for seven years to teach him who it was that was sovereign over him. And there's people in this world that live with that level of arrogance before Almighty God. 
In fact, we see a description of these people in Psalm 73. And so I invite you to turn there, turn back to, to Psalm chapter 73. The psalmist there is struggling with the fact that there are people all around him who seem to be prospering, and yet they're wicked. And he just can't fathom how they can be so wicked, and yet life is going so good for them. And he describes what they are characterized by. Psalm 73, we can start in verse 1. It says, a psalm of Asaph, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their, eyes over, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And stop right there. Isn't this an accurate description? These people who are basking in their wealth and all that they have. They can have their heart's desire and they arrogantly say, does God really care? Does God really even know about me and what I do? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And it says their tongue struts through the earth, right? You get the <laughs> image of a, of a tongue just like walking through and boastfully thinking and it can say whatever it wants and God's not gonna do anything. I'm in control. I have security. And pride is their necklace. And so you, we see here the connection between arrogance and pride and riches. That they, they can easily go together. And with that, with this accumulation of riches, there also comes unbelief. It's got spiritual dimensions. It doesn't just make life comfortable, but it draws their heart away from the Lord. So that they are, there's a practical atheism about them. They may think that there's a God in heaven, but they say that God doesn't really care and doesn't, isn't even going to be involved in their life. And this is the arrogant rich that Jesus denounces in Luke chapter 6. Those who are confident and proud in their riches. And so back in Luke 6, Jesus says to these rich people, Woe to you, for you have received your consolation. You've received your comfort. In other words, you've received the best that you're going to receive. This is all that you're going to receive. There's no more coming to you. There's no future consolation. There's no future reward. It is all there in your pockets right now. Everything that you can see, that's it. This is a sober warning that everything that is right in front of us 
that the rich have around them is all that they're going to receive. This is the best it's going to be. Jesus illustrates this powerfully in the story of the poor man and Lazarus. I want you to turn there, 10 chapters forward to Luke 16. Luke 16. This story of a, of a rich man and Lazarus, a poor man. And we see this great contrast that Jesus is describing here in Luke 6. Luke 16, verse 19. He says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And sent Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And you can stop right there. The word here in verse 25 that says that Lazarus, now he is comforted here, is the, that word comforted is the same word as consolation in Luke 6. And here we can see that Jesus says the rich people have their comfort and consolation in this life. That's what the rich man had. He, had. he ate sumptuously, he had everything that he had. But now, when the tables are turned and after death, the poor man who trusted in the Lord now received his consolation, now received his comfort. And the rich man was in anguish as he experienced the punishment for his sins. And so, Friends, we must take this to heart. This is the reality of the universe, is that there is a future that awaits mankind after death. And that how we live now, how we respond to Jesus now, has implications and consequences for eternity. And so as we look around at a world that is lost in sin, and we see them sumptuously feasting and enjoying life with their riches, let us not be envious of them. Let us not cause our hearts to wish that we had what they had because they have it all without Christ and therefore they are the poorest of all. When it counts, they will be empty-handed. But is it not true that this world screams at us every day trying to convince us that the good life is found here and now? That the good life is found in the abundance of riches and possessions? And we need to give our lives and our energies towards accumulating that. And yet Jesus gives us the brutal truth that that life that it glitters and shows on billboards and ads everywhere is not the good life. 
He pulls back the curtain and shows it's the condemned life. It's the life that will be utterly empty and broken and destitute in the end. But I think not only should we learn from this that we should not be envious of those who are rich, but we also need to look at our own hearts and ask whether we are somehow giving in or believing that temptation. Do we have some part of us that believes that pursuing the good life that it presents is, is where life is really found? Are we giving our energies and our thoughts towards that pursuit? Of course, we can always find those who are more filthy rich than us and therefore think that we're not like them. But we need to be looking in our own hearts and realize that we need to see the woe upon the rich and make sure it's correctly applied to us. Because we too can be arrogant in our riches. We too can subtly begin to think that we're a self-made individual. Because that pride can be found no matter how much is in the bank account. And so we must be watchful in our own hearts that the things we have, the standard of living we enjoy, and the money coming in every month does not harden our hearts towards God or others. We must have a sensitive heart towards the Lord, crying out in dependence upon Him, recognizing that it all comes from Him. We want to be the faithful, dependent poor, poor in spirit. And so I don't know where the temptation of the riches of the age attacks your heart. Each one of us, it's going to be different. For some, there may be a temptation to gain a little extra money through dishonest means, illegal means. For others, it may be that you're so pursuing the next toy or vacation or the next thing that you think will make you happy that you put in overtime and overtime and overtime and you work endlessly in order to attain those things. And you don't know how to stop. And your pursuit of it is in boastful arrogance. And so we need to look at Jesus' woe and realize that this mindset is foolish. It's not wrong to earn wealth. It's not wrong to have wealth. But to pursue it in a way that turns our back on the Lord is what Jesus is condemning here. You see, Jesus isn't condemning a certain amount of one's bank account. He's condemning a certain attitude in one's heart, an arrogant, godless attitude. And we need to realize that that is woe. The second quality of a disciple is that they are arrogantly comfortable. First, arrogantly rich. Secondly, Jesus says that they're arrogantly comfortable. He says, woe to you, verse 25, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. And so Jesus condemns those who are satisfied now. They're, they're filled to the brim. And so these attitudes of this worldly person are describing the person who's, who's so feeding themselves in the here and now that they're, they're just chock full and satisfied with all that they have. In the present, they have the comforts and the pleasures that this world has to offer. Most likely, it's because of their wealth, as in the prior woe, that they're able to satisfy, get this, they're able to satisfy any bodily, fleshly craving that they have. They want it, and they get it, 
and they're gonna stop at nothing to get it. At this time that Jesus is writing, the Roman Empire was in full swing and the Romans were, were known for their lavish, hours-long feasts in which they would just eat and drink continuously to show off their wealth and their status, that they could just eat and eat and eat. In fact, one Roman Caesar, Vitellius, would feast four times a day and in order to force himself to be able to have this sumptuous feast four times a day, he would apparently vomit in order to make room for the next one because he wanted the, the lavish lifestyle of feasting rich food every day. Now, the wealthy in Israel at this time, such as the religious leaders, probably feasted differently, but, and probably with more religious appearance to it than the Romans had, but nonetheless, they were still guilty of the same things. They were following after the flesh and appeasing themselves of whatever they, they wanted. And of course, it looks different in our day too. But the human craving for bodily satisfaction rages just as strong today as it did back then. Because mankind, since the fall, has all been plagued with sin. Today, we're told if we want it, to get it. We're told to follow our hearts. Whatever we're feeling, whatever we're wanting, we should be able to get it. That's justice, that's rightness, is if we can get what we want. Of course, this can take so many different forms, and so it can look different in each one of our lives. But the point is that we instantly want to fulfill our cravings. If we want it, we buy it, and it'll be at our doorstep in two days. If we want to eat something, we order it. And that too can be delivered now, right? If we want sexual pleasure, we should be able to get it whenever and however we want it. If we want to be entertained, we should be able to pull out our pocket or go anywhere and we should be able to entertain in however we want to be entertained. And how dare you question me? And we could multiply the examples, right, of the way that the world promotes fulfilling the cravings of the flesh. And here's the thing, the disciple of the world, those who follow the world have no self-control and they give in to their desires. And so their life's mission is simply to be satisfied, to do all that they can to live it up. And it's that attitude and mindset and that person that Jesus says, woe to you, for you shall be hungry. Right now, you might feel satisfied and simply be craving all the desires of your flesh and you think it feels good to be on that relentless pursuit. But he says, I'm gonna tell you one day, there's gonna be a day in which you're gonna have all those cravings times 10 and you're not gonna be able to fulfill a single one of them. You're gonna have that emptiness because in the final day of reckoning, this person's gonna be coming up empty. His hands will be empty, his stomach will be empty, it's interesting to think that maybe even in the torment of hell is that intense hunger pains that may be part of that torment as well. So friends, look at this warning. Jesus says, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. We cannot believe the lie of the American dream of consumerism, that to simply get more stuff and to simply satisfy our appetites, our cravings, will satisfy. It is a path doomed to failure. 
We cannot spend our days, spend our time, spend our money fulfilling the flesh. We must walk by the Spirit, and which wage war against the flesh. Of course, the, again, the, the advertisements tell us the good life is found in doing whatever you want to do, making yourself feel good, making life comfortable. But Jesus says that's not the good life. That is the empty life when eternity is on the line. So we see that the disciple of the world is one who's arrogantly rich, arrogantly comfortable. Next, we see that a disciple of the world is, I'm calling, arrogantly entertained. Arrogantly entertained. The end of verse 25. He says, woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. Again, Jesus flips the world's values on its head. This world says, let's eat, drink, and be merry. Let's live it up. And Jesus flips that on his head and says, that is not what you should value at all. Jesus says, such devotion to that kind of carefree, happy-in-the-moment kind of attitude will only lead in destruction. Now this woe on laughter, woe to you who laugh now, is not a call for the whole Christian church to walk around with no smiles and no laughter, okay? This is not a ban on comedy or uh, on telling jokes, uh, puns, all those sorts of things. We can enjoy uh, good laughs. I believe Jesus laughed and uh, uh, God laughs in heaven. So we know that laughter is a good thing. God created us to laugh. But I believe he's calling out those who live for the laugh. Those who live for that jovial entertainment. Maybe we could think of it in modern terms of those who love to party, who live to party. Almost like the Las Vegas lifestyle, right? Go and soak it up, live it up, enjoy whatever's there, and you'll just always perpetually have a smile upon your face. And you'll just be laughter and joyful as you're there with your friends and you can just soak up everything they have to offer and you're going to be happy. Jesus says, woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep. Friends, is it not what the world advertises to us all of the time, everywhere we turn? On the billboards, on the Instagram accounts, on the TikToks, on the YouTube channels. It looks glamorous and fun. Life is easy. And they just have this great time. What's, what's the hate about that? What's so wrong about that? That's the good life. They don't need to do anything hard. They don't need to do anything difficult. It seems to make them smile and be happy. I want that. And so they pull us in with each allurement to think and believe that that's the good life. I know many of you work around these people that live for the weekend, live for the party, live for the next entertainment high. It's the only way that they can get through life is kind of go and anesthetize themselves to the pain of this life. But they live for the moment. That is what characterizes a disciple of the world. They live only for the here and now. And Jesus says that those who are living only for their present happiness will find themselves one day mourning and weeping. 
Notice the double words he uses here. The only one to say mourning and weeping. He intensifies the point. There looks like great happiness and great fun now. But he says that will not last. There will be great pain that comes to those who pursue that lifestyle. It's Jesus is pulling back the curtain of this life that looks so glamorous and so great, and he's showing us the, the bones, the, the, the dead bones that are behind it. It's like those, those ads for smoking, right, that they show someone smoking and they're having a great life and, and they're enjoying their young person, and then they do this change to show you what it's going to do to you in the future, showing you internally, externally, the way that it changes you. And you go, whoa, that's what that's going to do? In the same way, Jesus here is pulling back the curtain to show us the consequences of this life. Now listen to me, young people. The world is screaming at you to believe that they will define what the good life is. And you're going to be tempted to think that all this stuff you've heard about Jesus and whatever doesn't amount to a hill of beans and that there's the good life is found in pursuing what this world has to offer. And I exhort you with the authority of Jesus to not believe that lie. Know the truth of God's word that says that that is emptiness, that that is passing away. Don't sell your soul for the, pleasant, the present joys. Think about eternity. Think about what happens after the grave. Live for eternity. The life of whoever you're seeing on that Instagram account, whoever you're seeing on that YouTube channel, you've got to remember the words of Jesus. It's not all it's cracked up to be. It may look great and look happy, but the story is it always ends in sorrow. In the end, there is mourning and weeping. Parents, no doubt there is great consternation in your hearts as you see your young people be allured by the things of the world, and rightly so. But I challenge you to look within your own heart and to see if there are not ways in which you are too pursuing the world and the world's values. It may not look the same as your teenager, but are there ways that your teenager sees you giving into your flesh and pursuing entertainment and pursuing that life, the good life, maybe in a different way? Sure, they might choose to go about it a different way, but we need to make sure that we're setting the right example of foregoing our flesh and pursuing Christ. Now, it's important to note that in all these cases, these people are not condemned simply because, again, they have money or because they're comfortable and they're full or because they're entertained, they're laughing, but it's because in all of these cases, at, in their heart of hearts, they have rejected the Lord of Lords. 
They have rejected Christ. They are not his disciple. They're not following after him. They instead are following after the world. That is why there is condemnation. That is why he says a woe upon them. So we need to take these to note and see that these qualities are not in us in some way. But lastly this morning, Jesus gives us the fourth and final quality of a disciple, and that is that a worldly disciple is universally applauded. A worldly disciple is universally applauded. He says, verse 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. In contrast to a Christian who is universally slandered, Jesus says a person of the world is universally applauded. Now, this does not mean that he's liked by every person on the planet, but rather that the majority praises him. The crowd praises him. Popularity holds a powerful sway on the human heart, does it not? We want people to like us. We want to be liked, not to be hated. We, we want to be well thought of. We want to be spoken well of. We're always on image control, trying to get pe people to think well of us and to speak well of us. You see it from the third grader who wants to be praised or commended by their friends all the way up to the business executive that wants to be praised by his colleagues. We all love praise. But that's why this warning in verse 26 is so crucial for us. He says, we need to realize the deceptive nature of worldly praise. The deceptive nature of worldly praise. To have the world praise us and say, good job, and pat us on the back. He says, woe to you when all people speak well of you. And so what this tells us is just because we're receiving the pat on the back, just because we're receiving praise, doesn't mean we're doing the right thing. In fact, to pursue the praise of the world puts one in the same company as the false prophets of Israel. You see, throughout Israel's history, there were the true prophets and there were the false prophets. Those who spoke for God and those who made stuff up. For example, Jeremiah. When Israel was put into exile, Jeremiah prophesied that they would be in exile for 70 years. But there's a false prophet who came along named Hananiah, and he went around prophesying, oh no, it's not 70 years, it's only two God's only going to put us exile for two years and then we're coming back. Who do you think the people praised in that moment? They're like, oh, sweet, only two. Jeremiah, what are you talking about? Right? He spoke well of the false prophet. And Jesus says, when we are spoken well of, we're in the same line as them. The disciples listening to Jesus on that day he gave the sermon were faced with the reality that the religious establishment and ultimately the nation would not accept Jesus and his message. Instead, they would praise those who taught their values and upheld their regime. And so here we see religious people could be spoken well of. Certain people in Israel on this, in this first century would have been spoken well of by the Pharisees and the scribes. They would have received the, the treatment, the pat on the back. And so they looked godly. They were religious. But they were not truly following Jesus. Do we not live in a day where everyone is concerned about what people think of them? 
Social media and the internet has made the applause and praise of the world more readily received and its insults more readily given. That instant feedback of the like or the heart or whatever it is is a craving in all of us to want to be accepted and to be liked in whatever we post or whatever we say. And so people and organizations and companies are now in this frenetic competition to signal their virtue that we're a good person, we're a good person, will you praise me, will you praise me? And it's all according to the standards of the world. They want to be spoken well of by those in positions of power. And folks, the same can be true for us in the church, that we want the world to think good of us, think well of us. And sometimes it can be motivated by a good desire. We want to reach our neighbors for Christ. We want to reach the world for Jesus, do we not? And so we, the logic goes, how can we win them for Jesus if, if our message is so repulsive? How can they, we win them to Jesus if they hate our guts? I mean, if, if, they're, if they're slandering us and ostracizing us and want us out of there, that doesn't seem like they're going to be attracted to our gospel and be attracted to our Jesus. So we want them to think that we're good people and we're good neighbors, and so this leads Christians and churches to reframe their beliefs or they simply don't talk about some parts of the Bible so that the world will not be offended by their message. The problem is that when Christians and churches do that, they totally ignore these verses that say, woe to you when all people speak well of you. To win the applause of the world is a fool's errand. Or as they say to Mary, the spirit of the age, is to be a widower in the next. If the church of Jesus Christ, get this, if the church of Jesus Christ receives the praise of the world, then it has apostatized. It stands with the false prophets. And we've seen this in church history. Just in the early 20th century, the mainline Protestant churches thought that they would lose their influence in society if they continued holding to such outdated beliefs as the virgin birth of Christ the inerrancy of the scriptures, and the resurrection. So they changed their message, and they changed their mission. No longer were they focused on seeing people converted to Christ through repentance and faith, but now they simply wanted to love people into the kingdom, they'd say. And today, those churches are not churches. They've either closed their doors because all God's children have left, or they say church out on the street but it's only worldly disciples that meet there on a weekly basis because they have abandoned Christ for the praise of the world. Or maybe you've heard the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Christian in Nazi Germany. He was a pastor. The church in Germany had to make a decision. Were they going to stand with Hitler and his ideology or were they going to stand true to the gospel? Bonhoeffer was a part of what's called the Confessing Church. And that was different than the state sponsored the Nazi-sponsored German Evangelical Church. That sounds good, right? German Evangelical, the gospel, evangelical. But they had to make a choice. Either they were going to be hated by the populace and join the confessing church or be loved by everybody in their society and join the German Evangelical Church. Be a true German. Don't turn against our country. Don't turn against the great nation that we are and join the confessing church. Bonhoeffer, being a part of the Confessing Church, chose to stay faithful to the Lord, and he was martyred in April 1945. But folks, we have the same choice in our day. 
Are we going to stay faithful to the Lord or try to win the applause of the world? And Jesus' woe here tells us we must reject that praise that the world gives us. That is not what we're after. That's not what we're pursuing. We want to win people to Jesus. But wasn't it Jesus that said that narrow is the gate and few are those who find it? But wide is the road that leads to destruction and many are those who pursue after it? And so as we come to the end of this text this morning, it prompts that question, whose disciple are you? What characterizes your life? Who do you follow after, the world and the values that it portrays, or Jesus and what he gives? You see, there's a day of reckoning. And it's that day of reckoning, that end day, that determines where we will spend eternity. If you've been pursuing a life of pleasure and happiness and ease in this life, I exhort you to feel the weight of the woes in this passage. That Jesus is the ultimate judge. He is able to back up these claims. For a disciple of the world, this life is all there is, and then there comes judgment. And see, one day you will stand face to face with your Creator and have to give an account for how you are living in this life. Do not allow the, the message of the world that tells you there is no judgment day to sit upon your heart. Remember the truths of Scripture. You must stand before his righteous law. But the good news is there, is, there is salvation from that destiny. There is a way to make a U-turn and turn away from the destruction that's promised here, and that is by turning to Jesus in repentance and faith. Repent that you have been walking in sin, that you have been pursuing life apart from Christ, that you've been living in rebellion to God, and instead turn to him in faith, confessing your sin, admitting your rebellion and embrace the life that's offered to him. Because you see, Jesus, he walked the path of pain and suffering and rejection, and he was crucified on a cross outside Jerusalem by his contemporaries. He was hated by the society of his day so that you and I could have life in ours. And how do we know that we're gonna receive eternal life on the other side of the grave? Because Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't stay in that grave. He was crucified, buried, but then God raised him up from the grave so that we can live in newness of life. And that newness of life is promised to all who would come to him in faith and repentance. I end with the words of James in James chapter four. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so what's the solution to that? James says a few verses later, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's turn to him now in prayer. Our God, we cry out to you asking that you would please teach us the truths of Jesus' words. 
Oh, Father, would you please help us to strip off the veneer of the world that tries to tell us that the good life is found in living for our pleasure and happiness and entertainment now. Simply follow our hearts to think that it will end well. It won't. Oh, Father, may we sense the woes of this passage, but also sense the blessings that the followers of Jesus might look destitute in this life, look like we're giving up things, but we're doing it because we're ultimately far richer. Father, may we as a church be faithful to you in these days by your Spirit's power. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. All right, you are dismissed. God bless you this week.